Thank you, Joyce, Melissa, and Jesse for leading us. I love the privilege of singing with God's people to our great God. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5? We're going to learn from God about leadership this morning. Leadership is a very important reality in our lives and one that is a real struggle for us. It's a struggle for us to lead well. It's a struggle for us to follow leaders well. And God wants us to hear from Him this morning about the importance of leadership, what it looks like, what it looks like to follow leadership, all under the leadership of God Himself. So 1 Peter 5 tells us about this important concept. One of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. Has anyone ever seen Remember the Titans? Yes. Love that movie. And... Uh, great, great uh, story about, uh, based on a true story of a high school that was integrated during the Civil Rights Movement. And it's hard enough to integrate as students at a school, but to integrate as a football team at a school takes even far more effort and brings far greater challenges and far greater reward, I would say. I'm not sure there's anything better for bringing unity between former uh, enemies than war and sports. And so it's amazing to have a common enemy now and suddenly the barriers between you don't seem that important anymore when there's someone on the other side of, of a war or a line of scrimmage for that matter. So uh, this, it's a story about you know, the football coach who's instrumental in this as the leader. But I find even more intriguing the relationship between the two leaders among the players. There's a kid among the white kids who's clearly the leader of the team and a kid among the black kids who's clearly a leader among, among them. And how these two teams finally became one team really depends on those two key leaders among the students, among the players. And the crucial scene in the movie, there are a lot of great scenes that are, are important, but the crucial scene in the movie is when the black kid Julius and the white kid Gary are arguing with each other about how bad the team is right now. And, and Gary yells at Julius, the attitude on this team stinks. And Julius says to Gary, an attitude is a reflection of leadership. Dun, dun, dun. And suddenly, an attitude of, of passing on the responsibility for the state of things to the team is something this leader realized he couldn't do. And so feeling the weight of the responsibility to set the tone, to be a leader that actually influences attitude and actions on a team is crucial. Attitude really matters, but leadership is often the key to attitude. It's no no coincidence that often after a CEO of a corporation steps down, the stock value of that corporation plummets at least for a time until they find out who's going to be leading that ship. It's very hard to lead. I've thought a lot about this over the past few weeks in preparation to teach on it, and I try to decide which is harder, to lead well or to follow well. I've decided they're equally difficult. I've I've thought a lot about this, and, and I think there are challenges that come with leading that can crush you. And there are challenges with following that can terrify you. It's a scary thing to entrust yourself to a leader. Whether that's in the family, whether it's in the church, whether it's at work, 
it's, it's a tough thing. Leaders have given us lots of evidence to lack trust for leaders, whether it's in the church or at, at work or in our government. Or, leaders have not shown themselves trustworthy much of the time. And so there's been an erosion, understandably, for the ability to trust leaders, to truly follow a lead, and it's also incredibly difficult to lead. You think of Moses, as bad as the Egyptians were, nothing was as hard as the Israelites. <laughs> and anybody who's been in ministry any length of time will tell you that the greatest challenges do not come from the outside world. It's not the, the pagans out there that cause the greatest problems. It's the family in here. It makes sense, doesn't it? Those you're closest to have the ability to hurt you more than anybody else. And, and so it requires a trust ultimately in God himself to lead uh, at times a, a really stiff-necked, difficult... You know, I was just talking to a pastor of a large church here in Southern California last week, and I said, how's it going? And he said, well, you know how it's going, don't you? And I said, yes, depravity still is true, isn't it? And he said, yes. As soon as you seem to get one thing solved, here comes something else. Uh, and, and it never ends, and it can wear, wear you out. And so, so I love that God gives us a teaching this morning on what it means to lead well and what it means to follow leadership well. So let's read the words of the Apostle Peter, ultimately the words of God, exhorting us, as he says this morning. We really need to pay attention to this. He uses this word, exhort or appeal. So let's attend to what God has for us this morning. This very important idea of leadership and followership. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Help us, Lord, now, please. 1 Peter 5, 1. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, this is just so wonderfully helpful and instructive to us this morning. And the first thing I want to think about, well, after I preached last week, I went to Ruth Dix. You guys know Ruth Dix? She's in her 80s, and she was a career missionary in the Congo. She's a pediatrician, brilliant woman. She and her husband, Richard, are amazing. She's one of my mothers in the faith here at Grace. And I went to Ruth after my sermon, and I said, Ruth, do you have any feedback for me? And she said, well, yes, I do. And she said, Eric, your outline and transitions were very unclear. 
I said, okay, Ruth, then I'll make an outline. And I did. So that's, that's Ruth's outline. And uh, there's, there's my outline. There's my, so now hopefully you can see the transitions, even if not, I'm not clear. I, I uh, want Ruth to be happy, and I want you to be happy. So I decided to approach it somewhat like a journalist and ask of this passage the why. And as we'll see in a moment, because of the fiery trials, that's why this passage is here. What? Well, we need to be Christ-like shepherds and sheep. How do we do this? Willingly, eagerly, humbly, and with joy. And for what? Ultimately, eternal rewards. Literally an unfading crown of glory. So let's take that first point. What's going on here? Well, Peter begins this passage using this word, so, or therefore. For some reason, the, if you have a New International Version, it's not there. I have no idea why they left that word that is in the Greek text out. But I'm thankful that ESV and NAS and others include it because it's very important. These transitional words, see, God's not as unclear as I am in my sermons. He, he gives clear transitions. And this so here is very important. So, Make sure we connect it to what come before. You know chapter and verse divisions are not in the inspired text, right? They were added much later and often very poorly. And so we knew we ignore that big five where our passage starts and, and see what's going on in this. So I exhort you. In other words, in light of what's just been said, I exhort you and you need to understand leadership and so on. So let's understand the so. What's the so about? Well, I think most clearly, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, what we find in our passage this morning is a way of practically working out what we just read in verse 19. We want to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good in the midst of suffering according to God's will. So how do we live lives of faithfulness then? How do we live lives entrusting our souls to God, who is faithful? Well, we do it with this leadership in place in the local church. But notice verse 19 forces us back as well. There's a therefore there, right? So what's the therefore referring to? Well, I think actually our passage this morning begins in verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Oh, so understand leadership in the church so that you can Be strong in the midst of fiery trial so that you can suffer faithfully, suffer hopefully, suffer joyfully, especially in the face of persecution suffering. Think of the Apostle Peter writing this, who was alive to write this only because of a miracle of God that kept him from martyrdom early in his ministry. Think of the Apostle Peter writing this letter to these dispersed churches knowing, remembering no doubt vividly, that James, who he launched the church in Jerusalem with, very early on in that launch, became the first martyr among the apostles, having his head cut off. Think about Peter writing this letter, remembering Stephen's martyrdom, being stoned to death 
for his proclamation of Christ. See, this is not about management principles. This is not about, well, we need the church to run efficiently, so somebody's got to make the decisions, so let's just put some sort of leadership structure in place. No, this is about preparing for the day of judgment in light of severe persecution and suffering that comes with this. This could not be more serious than it is. Now, management principles can actually be helpful in giving oversight, which we're called to do. I'm not minimizing that. I'm, I just want us to see the, the broader context, which is as weighty as it can be. Fiery trials is the context. Suffering is the context. So to suffer well, understand what leadership and followership in the church looks like. This is, yes, practical, but it couldn't be more dramatic and important than it is. So he says, I exhort you. And then listen to this. This is amazing. The elders among you. Now, as we see this word elder here, what I want you to realize is that there are words that are used interchangeably for this role among the people of God. This word elder. They're told in verse 2 to shepherd the flock of God. They're told also to exercise oversight Realize that the word shepherd is only used once as a noun word. We, we tend to think means pastor, which is a good translation of it. But, uh, but realize that, that it's only used as a noun once. The rest of the time in the New Testament, shepherd is always a verb. It's, it's what the overseers, it's, it's what the elders do. It's how they view themselves. Yes, as shepherds, but as shepherding God's people. But realize also that the words translated elder, Shepherd, overseer, those giving oversight are basically the same idea, same word. They have different nuances to them, but it's the same role we're talking about. Those entrusted with ultimate responsibility, ultimate authority, ultimate leadership in the local church. Paul tells Timothy to appoint elders in every city. There's a built-in leadership that has elders leading the local churches under the leadership of the shepherd, Jesus. It can be hard to realize. The first time I studied this, I was amazed at how, how clearly we tend to think roles like senior pastor, associate pastor, youth pastor must be in the New Testament somewhere, and they're just not. It's not that they're wrong to, to have those sorts of roles and titles, but we actually at Grace avoid titles like Pastor Gerald, because we just don't see the New Testament doing that. We, we think it can create a priesthood-laity distinction, and the priesthood of all believers isn't affirmed enough. Bishop elders, what Gerald's been wanting us to call him, but um, so far we haven't given in to those desires he has. But, uh, but, but the, these words, pastor, bishop, overseer, elder, uh, they're, they're all basically the, the same idea. In the New Testament. And and so at Grace, that's why we we don't do a lot with titles because it can can really confuse things, we think. Nothing wrong with it. It's not a a denunciation of using them, but 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 we want to value certain things here. So so these words are used interchangeably. And so we are called to be Christ-like shepherds and sheep. And again, this is challenging to understand well because. There are shepherds of God's people who do have authority, who do have responsibility, who who, um, we are to submit to, but the fact is, they're sheep too. The shepherds are sheep. And so, uh, the the followers are called to be humble, but the, the leaders are called to set the example in that humility. 
And so it can be tough to get this right because you can talk about servant leadership so much where it's not actually leadership anymore. You can talk about leadership independent of servant-heartedness where it's not Christ-like leadership. You can talk about following and emphasizing the priesthood of all believers so much that we're not actually submitting anymore. And so to do this well requires some, some real thoughtfulness. And that's exactly what I want us to have about this passage this morning. We're all sheep. We're all sheep of the great shepherd, all submitting to his authority and his leadership. But I love how Peter actually sets the example for us in the very writing of this. Think of the apostle Peter, to whom the keys of the kingdom were entrusted by Jesus himself because of his confession of faith that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. The apostle Peter, one of the inner circle of Jesus' ministry, with, with this this insight into the most intimate moments of Jesus' life. He was invited into the inner circle, was Peter. You could argue that as the one who really led the way in launching the first local church in Jerusalem, he was the lead apostle among the apostles. And what does he call himself? Look, a fellow elder. Imagine getting a letter as an elder of a little church in the dispersed churches in the first century, and reading the Apostle Peter say, I'm right in this with you. I'm shoulder to shoulder with you. I'm not above you. I'm, I'm duking it out in the trenches right along with you. And part of that is exhorting you to be the kind of elder God calls you to be. And so Peter says, I'm in there. And then he calls himself a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Maybe a reference to his experience of the transfiguration where he goes with the inner three and he sees Jesus transformed to display the glory that had always been there in his divine nature so that he comes off the mountain glowing. And he says, I've seen a foretaste of what's to come when Jesus comes again. I've seen his glory as you have too. You've beheld it in his face too, haven't you? He's saying, and of his suffering. I've been a witness of his suffering, he says before the glory. He says, I've witnessed his suffering. Now, I don't think he's saying uniquely. I think he's saying, I've witnessed it like you have, but he did experience it firsthand, didn't he? Peter saw Jesus bleeding to death. Peter saw Jesus after a night of being beaten. And how did he rise to that occasion? Poorly to say the least. He denied him three times. He went away and wept bitterly. I love that Peter's referring to having witnessed the sufferings of Christ. You know what it shows? He knows he's got a wonderful do-over going on. He, he, he was, he's able to start again. He really obviously receives the forgiveness of Jesus because he did witness his suffering and he failed miserably under those fiery trials. And now he's in a position of being able to call leaders of God's church to stand strong in the fiery trials. He started over. It's like Paul saying, I'm the chief of sinners and follow me as I follow Christ. How can you be both those at the same time? How can... How could Paul, who murdered Christians, say to the Ephesian elders, shepherd the church of God, and I'm free of the blood of all men in the way I've done this? It's because he had a fresh start. He, had, he didn't get mired in his past. He didn't get stuck in the guilt and the failures of his past. It's a beautiful picture Peter's giving us of a starting over. One of the reasons I've said before when we've come here is 
is we wanted to do first and second Peter after Mark because Peter fails miserably in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is not concerned about making sure we have a high view of, of Peter. We see Peter in all his failure, and we have a wonderful picture of Peter decades down the road being a new man. He's a different man here. Not only put back together himself, but moved on from his failures to the point where now he's a leader. And he's calling us to gentleness, even though he was the one who took out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear in the garden. He's the one telling husbands to love their wives gently and tenderly, even though he was a bit of a bully at one point. And so we have this beautiful start over with Peter here. And he says, as one who's experienced the sufferings and the glory of Christ, I'm right in there with you, and I want you to lead God's people as shepherds, shepherding God's flock. It's His flock. Never forget it, elder. The flock is not yours, ultimately. He says, shepherd the way in the way God would have you in verse 2. Because it's His church. It belongs to Him. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the overseer of all of us. And so we are shepherds realizing this. And, and the first thing for all of us to realize is that we're all sheep. The shepherds are sheep. The shepherds of God church, God's church are sheep. We are all, we've got to start there. It's prerequisite number one to be a Christian, to get to the end of yourself and know how desperately you need to be cared for by a shepherd. It's amazing that people would ever think Christians are arrogant people. Because you can't be one until you give up on your own so-called self-sufficiency. It's astounding how, how we, we could ever become prideful when you can't even be a Christian unless you realize you are utterly incapable of taking care of yourself, of, of solving your own problems. We're all sheep. I've, you may have heard me tell the story at some point, maybe years ago, but... This story stuck with me every time I think about being a shepherd. I was a commercial diver for a while. My dad was one of the owners of the Underwater Construction Corporation in Connecticut. And, and I got to work with my dad starting as a 16-year-old, and he just threw me into the, the insanity of this job. I don't know if you know much about commercial divers, but they fancy themselves as the last American tough guys, along with other vocations as well. But I'll put commercial divers with anybody in thinking they're tough guys. And they are tough guys, typically. And um, they're usually a little disappointed because they thought they'd be diving on sunken treasure ships uh, like Jacques Cousteau, but they're actually pumping mud at an intake system in a fossil fuel plant in New Jersey most of their life. So they're disappointed in that and are even more concerned, you know, how tough they are. So they're very tough guys. But among, I worked with one guy, Bert Schofield. You could drop a quarter through his wedding ring. That's how big this dude was. Um, yeah, you could drop a quarter through Bert's. He would do it. He would show people. He'd drop it right through his wedding ring. But, um, but of, among all these tough guys I worked with, the toughest everybody knew was, was um, Brandon Chafee. Brandon was a lumberjack before he became a, a, um, a commercial diver. And Brandon didn't like people very much. And that's one of the reasons he liked being a lumberjack, because he would, 
just get chains and saws and gas cans and go off into the woods and just cut trees by himself for days and then come back into civilization, and he liked that. But he was a commercial diver, and he was a tough dude. Mike Pellini, the littlest guy on our crew, he would start fights in bars all the time. Brandon Chafee would finish the fights. Um, he was a really tough man. My dad actually fired him that summer after having worked for my dad for a long time because he was welding in the tail race of the Holtwood Dam and he was doing it with no clothing. And um, he was welding naked. And my father said, Brandon, I, you know I have to fire you for this. Why were you welding naked? And he said, I was hot. <laughs> that was his big answer. Um, so, so his whole stomach was a big scar because he was cheating on his wife, came home one day. She had found out he opened the door to their apartment. She stuck a shotgun in his stomach and pulled the trigger. And he grabbed it and drove himself to the hospital after getting shot in the stomach with a shotgun. So I am sharing a tent with Brandon Chafee. Uh, the summer I was working on the Holtwood Dam as an 18-year-old kid. And I want to tell him about Jesus. And I will never forget his reaction. It's almost never happened this way. Most people actually, I find, want to talk about Jesus. But Brandon, I was about my third sentence in to, to tell him about Christ. And he stuck his finger in my chest and he said, kid, I don't want to hear about any of your blankety-blank Christian blank. And he did not say blankety. <laughs> he said, I don't want to hear about any of your Christian blankety-blank because I will never forget what he said. I ain't no sheep. And he stormed out of the tent. And I sat there and I thought, well, I don't think I'm going to bring that up again. And then I thought, and I'm thankful he understands what he's rejecting. At least on some level, Brandon had a really accurate understanding that being a Christian means seeing yourself as a sheep. What does that mean? You need direction from a shepherd. You need provision by a shepherd. You need protection by a shepherd. You need to be led to still waters to drink and green pastures to eat. You can't fend for yourself successfully. You need a savior. You need a shepherd. And I was thankful at least he knew that much of the gospel. That, that's very accurate. And if you can't handle that idea that you're a sheep, you can't be a Christian. If you can't handle that sense of utter dependence on God, if you've propped yourself up with being a tough guy or being somehow self-sufficient, you need to give that up to be a Christian, to, to get the care you desperately need from the great shepherd. That's what he provides. That's what we desperately need. It's his flock. And I also want you to notice that because of the fiery trials, we need to get to the great shepherd, but God has designed things because he knows we need earthly shepherds to help us get to the great shepherd. He's designed things so that we depend on human beings, frail, yes, fallen, yes, human beings, to help us toward the shepherd, to usher us toward the shepherd. He's designed things in that way. He hasn't left things just so spiritualized that there's not an actual human working out of getting to the shepherd with God's people. So we're told to shepherd the, the, the flock of God which is among us. Notice it says among us. Literally, that is your lot. The lot, the same idea when portions of land were allotted to the, the tribes of Israel. You were allotted. Well, well, the shepherds are allotted. They have their lot that they care for. 
little plot of land. Katie Tuttle, is a, she's a farmer. She's a, a gardener, and, and she understands having a plot she cares for. She gets this really well. She, she tends to, actually, the word pastor is a, a pastoral a gardening sort of image. And so we, we have her a lot, and look what else it says, that there's oversight under verse 3, those in your charge, which means, oh, there are those that are not in char- that the elder's not in charge of, under his, his charge. It, there are those who are not his lot. And that's really helpful to know because I would hate to answer to God someday for all the Christians in the world, or even the United States, or Fullerton, or California. There's, there's a specificity to this that actually makes it doable, it makes it possible both as those following and those leading. Listen to what Hebrews 13 says. Obey your leaders, Christians, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. To whom? God. When? On the day of judgment for the way they cared for God's people or not. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So there are specific elders appointed to care for a church under their charge, and we need to know who that is. That's one of the reasons we take membership so seriously at Grace, because as leaders, we have to answer to God for how we cared for your souls, and so we want to know whose souls we're caring for and have to answer to God for. Imagine how overwhelming it would be to to not be able to even identify for whom we need to answer to God one day. And it's important for uh, the flock in general to know to whom we're submitting and to do that intentionally and joyfully and in a specific way. That's why we have a membership process we just talked about with the membership class. So we, we really define and help you understand who we are so that you can either join joyfully or not. And so we, we recognize the importance of the specificity of this. And we emphasize a plurality of elders as we see it talked about here and in other passages And so we have ministry value number six at Grace is this. We believe the New Testament teaches a plurality of elders as a model of church leadership. Along with our commitment to the priesthood of all believers, we also recognize the need for strong, spirit-led, biblically instructed elder leadership under the lordship of Jesus Christ. However, the elders are not the only shepherds at Grace. We want to see all those with pastoral and teaching gifts use them regularly. The leaders of our small groups function as pastors of their small flocks within our church. We believe pastors and elders should function primarily as shepherds who emphasize the ministry of the word, prayer, discipleship, and the spiritual health of God's people. They're not primarily administrators or managers, although that's part of oversight. It's the ministry of the word and prayer, caring for the souls of people. And and I cannot tell you how, I could go on and on, how amazing it's been to lead with godly leaders at Grace for the past 17 years. To, to be, by their examples, just as they're called to be here, exhorted and taught and humbled and instructed and have an example set for me in generosity and self-sacrificial giving. And just yesterday, I was talking to someone who was, said, we were having a marriage crisis years ago. And the, the straw that broke the camel's back of my husband's patience and sanctification was when our refrigerator went out. He had had it with life and God and our family and everything else. It was just sort of the, 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 the final straw. 
And he was going into a tailspin, and she said, I hit my knees, and I prayed, God, would you show him how much you love him, and would you provide for us with this refrigerator in amazing ways just to help him? He needs you. He's frail right now. He needs you. Would you? Do you know that week one of our elders had heard their fridge went out and said, I want to buy you a new refrigerator. He had no idea that this was going to be part of solving a marriage crisis. Or that this man was in a spiritual tailspin. But see, shepherding, yes, involves a kind of leadership that, that is, is up front. But it, it's really foundationally that sort of thing. Caring for God's people. I've seen elders bail people out of jail with their own money in this church. I've seen them show up, lose lots of sleep. I, I've seen elders provide in ways that are so humbling to me with a kind of generosity. If you're an elder of grace, would you stand up? Okay. So these three guys currently are elders at grace. If you've been an elder at grace, would you stand up? Okay. If you are a deacon, would you stand up? Or have been? <laughs> Wake up, Viv. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. If, you're, if you've been a deacon, would you stand up? Right. Uh, if you're a grace group shepherd, would you stand up? Or have been one? It's probably like, there we go. Okay. Friends, these are frail people. <laughs> people who still battle sin in their lives and yet are called to lead and shepherd God's people. So uh, would you please pray for us? This is not for the faint of heart, and we can be faint of heart. We, we desperately need God's enabling and provision to do this well in a way he calls us. It's not an easy thing to lead. It's not an easy thing to follow. Uh, but this is part of God's design to help us meet these fiery trials with hope. Um, notice they are told, these leaders, to do this in a way that is not for selfish gain. Look at verse 2. Uh, not under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, don't do it because you feel like you have to or it's merely dutiful or you're stuck with this job or you whine about it. It's amazing how if you get together with pastors, it can be like getting together with a the faculty lounge at public high schools. <laughs> Just whining and complaining. It's I was a sub at my high school where I had attended after college and they just sat around smoking, complaining about the students. I just wanted to fire them all. It's like, why do you do this if you hate them so much, if you hate this so much? And, and he said, it, we're told, do not serve that way. Serve with joy. Serve gratefully. Serve humbly. Not under compulsion like you have to do, like you're stuck with this job, but with a joy that you have a priv privilege of doing this. Do it willingly. As God would have you. Be like God, in other words, in His generous, eager joy in giving. Don't do it for shameful gain, but eagerly. Who would, who would be a pastor for shameful gain? Well, actually, maybe not at Grace. You don't think that we, we you know, are driving around Rolls Royces. But these guys are. These are real pastors in Los Angeles, our town, half an hour. Has anyone ever seen this reality TV show, this so-called reality TV? What? 
I, I started to watch a three-minute trailer. Could only get through about 30 seconds before I started. And I couldn't handle I had to turn it off. And it's, these are the guys this passage is talking about. Don't be like them. Bragging about how many Bentleys they have. In their palatial mansions they get to live in. Now, th- there's a danger in, in having such glaring examples of what we're told not to be because it's pretty easy to see that that's the problem. What's harder is to say, yeah, nobody's going to accuse me of being in this for the money, but how about a feeling of importance or appreciation or, or, or feeling significant in some way? Or the, Every one of us has things as leaders lurking in our hearts that can be idolatrous like that, that are har- far easier to spot than these guys, these scoundrels. And so we, we all, as we take leadership, need to think, what are things in my heart that would be for selfish gain? And for me, it usually shows up when, when someone's critical or doesn't seem to appreciate what I'm doing, and then they're like, hmm, hey, let me pout for three days. Instead of, Lord, I want to be generous like you. You don't just show grace and kindness and care when people seem to appreciate it or value it, or affirm it. You loved a bride of which I'm a part that hated you. And So what does it mean to shepherd like God shepherds? Willingly, humbly, eagerly, with joy. No laziness. You know, the fact is, being in the ministry can crush you if you take it seriously. It's also a job where you can be incredibly lazy and get away with it. And so... So especially depending on on your level of gifting at certain things, you can just cruise. You can do that. You can hide and appear busy and and burdened. But if you get into it, if you really put your shoulder to the plow, it can just wear you out. It never ends. And so those who would shepherd need to do it the way God does, as examples Words are empty if they're not backed up with life. Be examples to the flock. And why do you do this? Not for selfish gain. Not what you get out of it temporarily, but why? Because when the chief shepherd appears, he will give you an unfading crown of glory. So all of us who lead in any way, and by the way, we all should be seeking to lead. We should all be seeking to have leadership qualities in us. This isn't just for the leaders in in one sense, although we need to clearly identify leaders. It's for all of us, isn't it? That's why I love the way he moves into the concluding exhortation. Likewise, verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I think this isn't an age thing, chronological thing. This is a maturity in the faith, those entrusted with leadership. Those of you who are younger, in other words, the ones following the elders, be subject, have a submissiveness to what's going on. It doesn't mean you never criticize or give constructive feedback or ask good questions or challenge or point out pride in an elder. Please don't ever expect perfection, but please... Give us exhortation. Give us input. Ask good questions. Challenge us the way we need to be as frail leaders. But look what he finally says. I love how he just makes it all-inclusive at the end. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Cultivate 
humble hearts. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. My goodness. I do not want the creator of the universe in opposition to me, opposing me. He tells me how that will come about. Pride. The thing that kills any work of God the thing that kills any spiritual movement of God, the thing that has killed revival every time it starts, is pride, spiritual pride especially. And so he says, cultivate a heart of humility. And friends, we need to wake up in the morning and go to war with our pride. We need to wake up and say, good morning, pride. I'm going after you today. I'm going to kill you today because you want to kill me, and I know that. And so I'm taking you out in my first minutes of the day. And I'm going to war with pride. We need to do that. Kenny will dive into that very idea next week. He's doing it right now in La Mirada, where it says, humble yourselves, therefore. And he'll help us pursue that goal of humility. But the bottom line in cultivating hearts of humility, being the kinds of leaders God calls us to be, the kind of followers God calls us to be, is recognizing how all we desperately need the great shepherd. That's what this is all about. We hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the chief shepherd when he appears. And we long for that day of his return, and we trust his grace and daily provision to get there. And what we realize then every day more deeply is how much we need that great shepherd. The most mature uh, leaders I've known are the ones who recognize their desperate need more than anyone else. There's this relationship between maturity and authority and humility and dependence that goes hand in hand. Dependence on the great shepherd. He's the one we desperately need. And you need the great shepherd every day. That's where this is all ultimately needing to conclude for us in understanding the great shepherd and how powerful he is to care for you and how tender he is to love doing that. He's got this strength and this kindness, this power and this tenderness that we desperately need in the great shepherd if he were just powerful that would not be helpful if he were just tender and not powerful that wouldn't be helpful but this shepherd can fight off any enemy you have this shepherd can care for you as a tender shepherd does listen to this prophecy of the great shepherd we have from thousands of years ago telling when jesus comes listen to the power and the tenderness, Isaiah 40, 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. And then listen, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Oh, do you have an understanding of how desperately you need a powerful shepherd and a tender shepherd? My son, Sam, loves his mother. Oh, Sam loves his mother. Um, My wife, Donna, and Sam's 10. And last week, he just said, I'm going to make a card for Mama. And he spent about an hour and a half writing this beautiful card for his mother, just saying, why I love Mama. And we're all these things because she's beautiful. And then he went and found a picture of flowers, irises, and put them on after because she's beautiful. And it was this beautiful, elaborate card that he made. And the best part of the card was right in the middle. And it said, I love Mama because she cares for us like a tender shepherd. 
And he went and found a picture of Jesus holding a little lamb to his chest. And when he gave it to Donna, he included a napkin he got from the kitchen. <laughs> he did. It was beautiful because he knows his mother. And he knew she'd need it. And she did need the, the napkin. But I love that because what's Sam saying? My mom's like Jesus. Sam's saying, Jesus is caring for me through my mom. And that's the idea here. It's, it's a shepherding that looks like the shepherding of the great shepherd that we desperately need. Do you realize how much you need a shepherd to care for your souls? Do you realize how you need human shepherds to help you move more and more toward dependence on him? You need that. We can get going with our lives with a sense of our immortality and our self-sufficiency that's just a farce. Last night, I was in the hospital until midnight with a family whose life just changed in one second. One second, everything's going great. And, and, and one second later, everything's very different. If you feel self-sufficient, if you feel strong, you're not. You're just not. Give up that idea and run to the great shepherd. Turn from your sense of self-sufficiency and, and, and uh, autonomy and strength and realize you're not those things. You depend on your creator for everything, everything. So turn to that creator in his provision for you in the great shepherd Jesus who gave his life for the sheep. He laid down his life. Trust that shepherd. I can trust that shepherd. He died for his sheep. He shed his own blood to create his people, the church. Let's, let's go to the great shepherd and, and like never before depend on him and his means of getting us closer and closer to him in the church. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We, we get thinking that we're not going to die. We get thinking that we can solve our own problems independent of you and your provision for us in Christ. Would you please help us, Lord? to run to Jesus, and to do that by running to your church, the leadership of your church, the, the authority of your church, the safety and protection and provision of your church. Lord, please help us in these things, we pray, in the name of the Great Shepherd. Amen.